And thanks be to God. Thank you, Cheryl, for reading God's word for us this morning. And Shelton, it is our joy to open up the word of God together this morning. If you, are, if you have been with us for a while, in the fall, we have been studying the book of Ephesians with the theme of one church. When we really believe that we have everything we need in Christ alone, we begin to lay down ourselves for the flourishing of a whole church. And that's how we can be one church. How can we be one church? When we are so secure in Christ alone that we have everything we need in him, when we are so secure of that, we begin to lay down ourselves for the flourishing of the whole church rather than just insisting upon our ways. Then what hinders us from becoming one church? Thinking that church is all about me. It is all about me and my need, my ego, my opinion. Uh, That mentality of it is all for me hinders us truly becoming one church. So I pray that as you continually plow through the book of Ephesians, this theme of one church will become more and more pronounced. And Paul does exactly the same in the first three chapters, especially we will look at. He lays down the foundation of who we are in Christ. And I pray that as we dive in, that reality will begin to sink in more and more in your heart. So last couple of weeks, we have looked at chapter 1. Yes, it is talking about who we are in Christ in vantage point of God. Salvation is outside in, all because of what God has done. We are secure in Christ. Today, we are diving in chapter 2, as Cheryl has read it for us. And this time, we are also talking about who we are in Christ, but from our vantage point of view. If chapter 1 is more about God's vantage point of view, how he loved us, what, how he has initiated salvation and all, now what does it take place within our heart? So today, we will talk about our new life in Christ today. I don't know about you, but I don't have a TV in my home. Actually, I haven't watched the TV for the last couple of decades, I would say, because I never owned one in my adult life. Uh, But when I go to doctor's office, or when I go to gym, or even in my mobile device, I cannot avoid all the advertisement or commercials. In the last couple of decades, so many commercials and advertisement have changed so much, even little I see it. But one commercial out of all that remained the same in my opinion, this formulaic commercial, so cliche, but it must work every time because it's the same commercial. In my opinion, it's the weight loss commercial. It always shows a before picture and after picture, and how you got there. Do you see that side-by-side comparison? Maybe because I spend the time in the gym, that picture's always there. This picture, that picture, side-by-side comparison, and they show how you got there. It's just all over the place. That commercial, just out of all the commercials in the last two decades that evolved, not this one, before and after how you got there. It seems so clear to me, it must work. And how you get there, sometimes they sell product of medical equipment. Sometimes they tell you new exercise program. Sometimes they show you this new meal kit. 
But in a sense, in that way commercial that I see often run into, that's what exactly Paul is doing, except it is not about weight loss. Uh, this, what this commercial is doing before and after how you got there, it's about external conformity, external transformation. But what Paul is doing in today's text, it will show you your before Christ and after Christ and how you got there internally. It's about internal transformation that takes place within us when we become Christians. And I hope and pray that as you dive in, you will realize how desperate state you are in before Christ and how he has changed you, transformed you because Christ has come into your life and Paul will double down on his argument how we got there. Spoiler alert, it's all by him, through him, because of him. We are alive in Christ alone. So you will see that this text is just so much about our being that leads to doing. It's the indicative, our verdict, that leads to imperative. This seems like a very subtle thing, but when you think it is your doing that leads to being, when you think it is imperative what we must do that gains your salvation, externally it might look exactly the same, but internally it's the heaven and earth difference. One is motivated by fear, while another one is motivated by gratitude and love. I pray that this glorious reality of who we are in Christ Jesus will become evident as you dive in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's go one by one. So before, after, how? First, before Christ, verse 1 through 3. So verse 1, it describes that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. That's how Paul begins this section. It's the continuum prayer from the chapter 1. But this statement, the way Paul talks about we were dead in our transgressions and sin, the deadness kind of raises quite a bit of questions because it does not seem to square with our everyday life. I mean, Paul says that we were dead, those who are non-Christians, but when you look at the vigorous body of athlete, when you look at the beauty of youth, those movie stars, when you look at those people who are successful in the world, who is just raking it, certainly they don't look dead to me at all. They seem so much alive, actually. They are making it. They are beautiful. They seem like fit. But Paul is calling all those non-Christian before Christ the dead in transgressions and sin. What does he mean by that? Because in our eyes, they seem most alive than ever before. I wish I can be like them sometimes in my fleshly desire. But Paul, but call, Paul calls the dead. How? He does it in two ways. First, they were dead. We are dead in our secular culture that blurs what is right and wrong. Second, we are dead in our self-centeredness. So first, we are dead in our culture, secular culture that surrounds us, that blurs what is right and wrong. Second, we are dead in our self-centeredness. How so? Look verse 2 first. We are dead in our culture that surrounds us. Paul says, in which you used to live when you follow the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Now, when, it, when Paul says that we used to live the ways of the world, talking about our surrounding, our culture. Chelton, whether you want to admit or deny, we are the product of our exposure. 
what you expose yourself will begin to shape you. So in your childhood, you really are in the end the product of your upbringing and family. Parents, I hope they give you some sober-mindedness. You have this incredible responsibility to love and train and nurture your children in the way of the Lord. And in your adult life often, you really become product of your surrounding, your community especially. Your friends, your co-worker, people you interact the most will begin to shape your thoughts and mind. We become the product of our surrounding. We used to live when we follow the ways of the world. And the world that we live in is known by the secular age, by the Charles Taylor in his work, monumental work of secular age. In that book, he defines that we live in a culture that is defined by secularism. That means now is everything. Secular, in other words, temporal. Now is everything. What you see is all that is. So we have, this is so 2015, but we have YOLO. You only live once. Do as your pleasure, as your flesh pleases. Live however you want. So we become, and then how does it blur what is right and wrong? It says that, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that air can also be translated as a foggy atmosphere. When it's foggy, you cannot even see it 10 feet down the road. Everything's so blur. It's so thickened and darkened that this culture, this world around us, sometimes blind our eyes for what is right and wrong. And we just live as if it pleases us. And that, Paul said, is dead. You're dead in the world that you are surrounded by, and we are just being disobedient from the leading of the Spirit. It blurs what is right and wrong like a thickened fog in the air. And second way we are dead in our sin, verse 3, what does it say? All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Second, we are dead in our self-centeredness. What does that mean? It says that we are gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Flesh, as many of you know, is not necessarily skin on your bones. When Scripture talks about flesh, it means the fallen nature of our self-centeredness. It's all about me. It's the self-absorption. If you have been around Chelton quite a bit, you probably have heard us talking a lot about self-centeredness, self-absorption. Today, let me dive in deep and really define what that means for us. It was Augustine of Hippo, the early church father, probably one of the most influential thinkers that shaped greater Christendom, once said this phrase, Latin phrase, incarvatus in se. That's the golden phrase that I'll repeat throughout the sermon, incarvatus in se. It's a Latin phrase, means the curved inward on self. So in curvatus in says that it's, everything's curved inwardly. And later in Reformation time, Martin Luther, that led Protestant Reformation, really defined what this means by saying, our nature is so deeply curved in on oneself that it wickedly, curvedly, and viciously seeks all things even God for its own sake. That's what sin is about. Everything you see, everything you hear, everything you talk about, you're always thinking, what's in it for me? What does that mean for me? We cannot even enjoy the great, one of the most fun and celebratory occasions. You go to wedding. Of course, you're so happy for groom and bride, beautiful, radiant. But what do you think? 
your own wedding day, reminiscent or longing for. When people talk about, they don't even talk about you, but you hear what people are talking about, what does that mean for me? How does that affect for me? Our sin cravings, gratifying of our flesh is always curved within gratifying our own fleshly desire. So it's as if we live the world with this microchip in our heart that calculates, okay, how does that benefit me? How does that hurt me? Everything's about all about me and me only. We are dead in our self-centeredness that seeks desires and thoughts. It's incurvatus in se. Everything's inwardly curved. Well, Chelton, welcome to the gatherings of narcissists. Well, I'm one of them whether you want to admit it or not. That we are so dead in our own self-centeredness that we seek everything in light of how does that affect me. Do you know what kills us being one church? That very mindset, what's Chelton doing for me? It's all about me. That hinders us from us truly becoming one church because we are all about my rights, my opinion, my assertion, my will shall prevail. But we are church not just for ourselves. When we truly realize that we have everything we need, we need in Christ Jesus, we begin to lay down our self-absorption, then inwardly curvedness, and begin to care for one another, love one another. What is so deceptive about the inward curve that we are so bent is that it has not only deceiving effect in your bad deeds. When you're doing something bad, you sort of know it. But when you're doing good deeds, you think you're doing it for others, for God. But our inward bent, even your best deeds are often for yourself. You realize that. Well, might as well, I opened the sermon by talking about, you know, weight loss in gym and all that. Yes, I love going to gym. Whether it be the CrossFit, swimming, rock climbing, in my free time, I just plug in sermon or audiobook, and I just love working out. But about a couple months ago, I had an unexpected encounter at the gym. You know, that's my time where I just do my thing. But I ran into this lady in her about 40s. I have permission to share her story today. Um, for her privacy's sake, let me just call her Jane. Uh, Jane and I ended up talking in a gym for a bit, which turned out to be a three-hour conversation at the gym, uh, which I did not expect. She just said, hi, so hi, we are talking. And I often do not reveal my identity because often I say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a pastor. And I just, as I say, it, it cuts off all conversation, I realized. <laughs> I guess it's not the most appealing vocation or what. <laughs> so I was kind of shy about it, but then she was really pressing. So I was like, well, yeah, I work as a clergy. I'm a minister. And then she really opened up. She's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. The reason why she's so opened up is that she's a Jewish lady and she's been seeking the meaning of life. So she's really unloading herself. And this lady has made it in her 40s. She founded a company already that's a multi-million dollar company. It's raking it in. And she's like, Jen, I realize money, yeah, it allows me to afford some nicer car and bigger house, which I appreciate. But I'm realizing that it's empty. I think I need to help others. I think that's where I can find meaning of life. I think I'm going to begin donating my money and I'm going to give it away. I'm like, give it to me. No, <laughs> no I didn't say that. <laughs> I'm going to donate. I think that's how I can live. But I really pressed. I was like, 
okay, that's really good that you are no longer living for you. But do you realize that even your best deeds that you want to help others, you are in the end serving yourself to find the meaning of life? Do you realize how inward curved even your good desires are? Of course, I didn't, didn't use the word incurvatus and say anything like that. Uh, but as you're talking, she's like, you know, I offered her, hey, if you're really seeking for meaning of life, I'm not here to sell you anything, but let me present you Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah that you have been waiting to return. We believe, I believe as a Protestant minister that he is not only coming, but actually he has come once. And I believe true meaning of life is found in that. Out of all the religion that you are seeking, I propose to you, why don't you do 12 weeks Bible study with me? Um, I walk you through the questions of life. I walk you through Judaism with you too. And then I think we as Christians have most compelling case. So I presented the gospel to her and gave her my phone number. If you're interested in studying Christianity with me, let me know. She invited me to Jewish Sabbath dinner and all that. You can continually pray for her. I actually did not hear her back after all. I thought I was a good evangelist. I guess not. <laughs> but the seeds has been planted. God knows. But the reason I'm sharing this story is that even in our best deeds, he's like, now I can find meaning of life by helping others, which is great. But in the end, that even your best deed is inwardly curved because you're seeking for your own sake. And that is the same for us, Chelton, as well. Christians are a group of believers who not only repent our bad deed, but we also repent our best deeds because we know even in our best deeds, our motivations are often self-serving. What about me, Chelton? Let me just reveal myself to you. If you have walked, if you walked through a summer series with us, in one of the sermons, I revealed my mission statement of my life, right? I say very fancy way, the mission of my life is to fulfill the calling of God by proclaiming the word of God as effectively as I can and by shepherding the people of God whom God has entrusted me with. It sounds very novel, right? It sounds great. But if I just flip the coin, why do I want to preach so well? Yes, I want to serve you. I want you to get it, the beauty of the word. I want you to grasp the meaning of gospel. But if you flip that coin within me so that I can be known as an effective communicator, so that I can be accepted, so that I can be known as the just good, competent man, the self-serving mentality is also within me because I am in Carvatus in sage, inwardly curved, seeking all things, what is in for me. Chelton, do you realize how narcissist I am? And you are too. But misery is better with company. Even we now have Christ in us, we constantly battle off our inwardly curvedness. But now, now that we talked about a lot of depressing stuff, let's go for where is hope? Verse 4 through 6, so before Christ and now after. Do you realize how verse 3 ends? We were by nature deserving of wrath. We are dead in our environment, surroundings, and culture that blurs what is right and wrong. And we were dead in our self-absorption, self-centeredness that deserved God's wrath. That's our state without God. But look how verse 4 begins. But because of his great love for us, God loved us so much who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Praise be to God. Here in NIV translation for the flow of English language, 
NIV trying to change the word order, but if you look at the original Greek manuscript, the first two words that begins in verse 4, after you deserve wrath, but then two words that begins in verse 4 begins by, but God. That's two most glorious words in the English Bible. We are dead in our transgression, but God. Uh, one of my heroes of faith of all time is British Anglican minister who lived single all his life named John Stott. I mean, John Stott, this is what he says about this verse 4. Verse 4 begins with a mighty adversative, but God. These two monosyllables set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God. We were the object of his wrath, but God, out of the great love with which he loved us, had mercy upon us. We were dead, and dead men do not rise, but God made us alive with Christ. Amen. That's who we are in Christ, Chelton. Do you know how powerful, how effectively Paul communicates that to us? If you look at three verbs that Paul describes God's action on us, verse 5, what does he say? The objective is all us. Verse 5, he made us alive with Christ. Verse 6, God raised us up with Christ. Verse 6, and God seated us with Christ. It's all what God has done for us with Christ. Now, let me get a little technical just for a few seconds. Let me dive in technicality for two minutes, and I'm going to come quickly out of it. I am saying this so that you can understand how Paul is really emphasizing that as he's doing the word play. Now, the three verbs that's used, objective is us alive with Christ. He made us alive with Christ raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ. The verb, the Greek word, listen how the word begins. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you know Greek or not, but Paul begins each verb with this prefix. Just listen to the first syllable of each Greek word, made us alive, and God raised us with Christ, seated us with him, What's the first syllable? It's su. Do you see that? The prefix Paul adds. English has the exact same actually prefix, the word with S-Y-N, such as synonym, synthesis, synchronize, or even the word synagogue, which is the place of gathering. Do you know what the su stands for? It's the union with Christ. It's like word synchronize, word synagogue, Word synonym has a together uniqueness, likeness. So Paul, in his way, playing the word play to emphasize we have been united with Christ. We are with Christ. When we are dead in our sins, our state is damnation. But because now, because of his death and resurrection, we are united with him. We have union with Christ. And that is the most comforting and the threatening. Most encouraging, it can be most difficult at the same time. Why is the union of Christ, now that we are with Christ, he made us alive with Christ, he raised us up with Christ, the union of Christ is both encouraging and very difficult is this. 
Um, of course, it's encouraging because it is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. But also, it's hard. Why is that so hard? Because before Christ, at least we can just go with the flow. When you're going with the flow of the wave and the current, you don't even feel its resistance because you're just going with the flow. It is what it is. But now that we have Christ within us, we are going against our fleshly desire and cravings of our flesh. That will become block. It will fight back to you because Holy Spirit is within you. Your ego of your beast has been shot. What happens when the beast is shot? It tries to fight back as best as it can. So there's war within your heart because you have union with Christ. You can no longer enjoy the pleasures that you used to enjoy before Christ because there's Holy Spirit indwelling in you because we have been united with Christ, constantly fights back. Sometimes it's discouraging, right? Just like we talked about inward curved of our self-centeredness. I know I am with Christ, but I seek, still seek all things for myself. Oh, how does people respond when I say this? Oh, what does that mean for me? Oh, am I good? Am I bad? It's all about me constantly. But because I have Christ in me, I can lay myself down. I am no longer captain of my soul. He is Chelton Wenga. God sees you. He no longer sees your sinful state before Christ, but he sees Christ in you. That is our comfort and encouragement. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because we were dead with Christ, now we are raised with Christ. We have this union with him. So if you think uh, you are the captain of your soul today, if you are panicking today, why is my life falling apart? Why doesn't it go in a way that I want? I should be in control of my life. No, you are no longer captain of your soul. It is Christ arranging you, who rules over you, sovereign over you. So when things go out of control, when things just fall apart, would you remember yourself that you are dead with Christ, but you are raised with Christ, you are seated with Christ. So even when things fall apart, take heart, for our Lord is with you in your sorrow. Our Lord is with you in your trial. Our Lord is with you even in your battle of your old nature. We no longer have to be curved within, but we can look outward because we have indwelling Christ in us. And now what we have is only black and white picture before K reality is about to come. Look verse 7. What does it say? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus in the age that is to come. What we know already, we have full assurance of what Jesus Christ has done. But often we only see it as a black and white picture. But the 4K reality of his kindness, his love, his riches of mercy, we will enjoy that forever throughout eternity. Why? Because we are with Christ. That is our new life in Christ alone. So now, before Christ, we are dead in our transgressions and sin. In the surrounding, we are just a product of our exposure, and we are also dead in our self-absorption, self-centeredness, in Carvatus, in say. But now, 
after Christ comes in our life, we are united with him. We have union with him. It is no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Now the question is, like the good weight loss commercial, how did he get there? How can you get there? Read verse 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have gone spiritual death to life, bondage to freedom. We have gone from condemnation to being fully accepted by his grace and mercy. How in the world did we get here? Here, Paul, verse 8 through 10, tells us that it is grace that leads to faith, and the faith that leads to work. Grace leads to faith, faith leads to work. This is actually, when you really think about it, Charlton, this is very scandalous because we live in a society that wants to earn it, wants to earn it. Um, I have been reading this book, uh, Tyranny of Merit, written by Michael Sandel. He's a professor at Harvard, and he criticized our culture, meritocracy culture. We think we have earned it, and he gives one example of the, one of the greatest footballers of all time, if not the greatest, Lionel Messi. You think he just earned it? He earned it to be the best footballer? What if he was born in Greco-Roman culture? Would he have been as successful as he is right now? By no means. We think our works is what earns our being that leads to God's blessing. We live in such a society of meritocracy, meritocracy, thinking that I can be whatever I want. I can earn this. So he criticized how all the students who get to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they think they've earned it. They think that's fair. But all those people are there often very came from wealthy background with great parents who can afford. A lot of poor students don't even get a chance to make it. So this notion of our thinking that it's all about meritocracy, we can earn it, we can earn it, work it to earn our being, he's criticizing that it is false. And that is very scandalous because in ourselves, while we know that grace leads to faith, faith leads to work, our human default, what we want, my work leads to my being. Because I worked hard, I am who I am because I worked hard, and that leads to God's blessing. While faith is grace, faith that leads to work, we go exactly opposite. So in externally, it's supposed to be the least to your doing, your indicative least your imperative, just like your Paul says, it is a faith that leads to work. But when you flip that, it is my work that earns my righteousness. And as I'm righteous, God will bless me. Externally, you might act exactly the same. Internally, one is completely driven by fear. Am I good enough? Did I work hard enough? Did I earn it? Another one is sheer grace and love. Oh, it is all because of what God has done. His grace initiated my faith. He opened my eyes and my faith. Now, because I've been accepted, I have been redeemed. I work unto the Lord, not out of fear, but out of joy and gratitude. I don't think I can illustrate this better uh, without talking about my favorite musical of all time, which is Les Miserables. Uh, when you see Les Miserables, Zhang Valzan steals this silver platter, silver, all the silverware from the bishop. 
And Bishop Zhang Lazar runs away, caught by police, comes back. And Bishop, instead of extending justice, he extends grace. No, Zhang Valzan didn't steal this. I gave it to him. Forgive him. Now the grace was extended to Zhang Valzan. There's internal turmoil going on. If I accept this grace, then I no longer have control of my life. If I refuse grace, then I can live out of my self-righteousness. After the torn state, the grace, he chooses to accept the grace the grace leads to faith. And Zhang Valzan lives a life of really serving others, working unto the Lord. On the other side, there's another character in Les Mis, Zaver, the police officer, who lives by, I work hard. I am who I am because of my righteousness. When the grace was extended to him, rather than accepting the grace and living for the Lord, the scandalous grace drives him to killing himself. He could not take that because it's all about his righteousness. I must earn it. I am good enough. And if you think about it, all the other religion is all this system. It's you must go up the ladder to meet God. You must do this, do this, do that. But really, Christianity is unique in world religion that, no, there's nothing you could have done. Jen, you can only bring your nothingness. So I came down the ladder to meet you in your helpless estate. It is my grace that leads to faith. So now your faith leads to work then out of joy and gratitude, not out of heavy-laden burden. But actually, what gets me in lame is oh, each time I watch, I sigh, tearing up is not a word. I sob, I mean, give me two boxes of Kleenex. <laughs> it's the ending sin at the very end when Zhang Malzang lived a great life, he's about to die. But even in his life, he lived for the Lord. He's like, God, forgive my trespass and take me to your glory. And then he did all the great deeds, raising his adopted daughter, Cosette. And the ghost of Cosette's mother, Fantine, appears says, Lay down your burden. You will be with God. Lord in heaven, look down on him in mercy. Shelton, let us lay down our burden, for it is not our works that leads our faith, because we are with God, and we will be with God, because Lord in heaven looked down on us in mercy. That is the gospel according to Lamez. And Shelton, what is this glorious truth? How did he get to our before to after? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he stripped of all his glory. He left his eternal heaven with the Father, Son, and the Spirit, perfect union. He became incarnate, helpless babe, lived a life we should have lived, died a death that we deserved on the cross of Jesus Christ. He took all our condemnations, he took all our sins and transgressions, our self-absorption, our incarvatas in say the self-centeredness, and he bore it all at the cross. It is his grace that redeems us. So now redeem the people of God. Let us serve the Lord. Let us work out of joy. Let us lay down ourselves for the flourishing of a whole church. When we do not know this glorious reality that we have everything we need in Christ alone, will constantly fight, this is my way, my will shall prevail. No, you have everything you need in Christ Jesus because his grace led you to believing in him. And now that you believe in him, you lay down yourselves for the flourishing of one another. That's how we can be one church. Children, do you know who you are in Christ? In his riches of grace and mercy and love, Jesus Christ has pursued you. 
when you're utterly lonely, when you felt like nobody sees you, when you're utterly self-absorbed in your own right, when your microchip processor in your heart was constantly calculating, what's in it for me? It's all about me. Even when you're utterly, when I'm narcissist, God took pity upon us, loved us, pursued us through death. Now we live in Christ alone because of what he has done. It is by him, through him, because of him. In Christ alone we live. It is no longer now I who live, but Christ lives in me. For we have been crucified with Christ. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that may our works be a joyful rigor. And may our works be the expression of our gratitude and love for all you have done. God, we were dead in our surroundings. We were just product of our surroundings and cultures. We are dead in our sins and transgression. But God, now, because of what Jesus Christ says, we have union with you. We are made one in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So, oh Lord, we don't have strength to fight, which continually fight for us. In our weakness, would you continually be our strength? And God, we look for that glorious day in that age to come when we get to see everything in full reality. So God, we praise you for saving us through your grace that gave us faith. And oh God, I pray that you will continually save us from our inwardly curved within ourselves. We seek all things to ourselves often. So we repent, we confess but we repent and confess with hope, knowing that we have Christ's righteousness in us. And may the glorious reality of what Jesus Christ has done compel us every day to live for him. God, we ask that you continually make Chelton a church of hope as one church. We commit ourselves to you in your precious name. We pray, amen.